I just want to introduce uh, Carl a bit. Um, most of you know, will know Carl. Carl has been a member of the church for a long time. He's on the church committee as well. He's from New Zealand, and he's here um, as a missionary. Uh, he works with uh, Campus Crusades um, and doing evangelism amongst um, uh, college students. Um, it's great to have him start this new series for us on Sola Scriptura. And it's a, um, we're going through uh, these solas of the Reformation, the Sola Scriptura, the, 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 by grace alone, by faith alone, and I'm actually uh, Christ through Christ alone, but I'm going to add, tack on one more thing in the end, um, uh, the priesthood, uh, priesthood of all believers um, as well. But here is Carl to start our new series for us. Thanks, Carl. Thank you for that introduction, uh, Hugh, and uh, uh, welcome. Uh, before we start off today, let me just uh, open with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you that you have given us your word, and Lord, as we, uh, as we listen today, may you help us understand what your word is and the place that it should have in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we, uh, as we take a look at Sola Scriptura, you may wonder what we're doing with uh, this sort of Latin phrase and what it means. Now, to start off just basically, Sola Scriptura means Scripture alone. And to give us an understanding of what this phrase means and how we apply it to our lives, we're going to be doing a bit of time travelling today. And the first place we're going to go is we're going to go back to ancient Israel. Now, to start off with, first of all, we need to understand a bit about the context of ancient Israel. Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings of Judah. He was the king who defended Jerusalem against the might of the Assyrian forces uh, when Sennacherib uh, took a great army and camped them outside the gates of Jerusalem. And he was a king who truly sought after God. However, when Hezekiah died, he was followed by probably one of the most evil kings that Judah had, Manasseh. As well as being one of the most evil kings, he was also the longest reigning king of Judah, reigning for 55 years. All of the idols that Hezekiah had gotten rid of in the land of Judah, Hezekiah built up again and worshipped them. And even more, he even went so far as to sacrifice his sons to the god Moloch in the fire. Now Manasseh's son Amon was just as idolatrous as his father. And probably the only good thing that can be said about his reign was that it was short. Two years into his reign, he was murdered, assassinated by his servants. And then he was succeeded by his eight-year-old son, Josiah. Josiah was, along with Hezekiah, one of the few bright spots in the history of Judah's kings. The catalyst for most of the reforms that Josiah was able to bring about came from a rediscovery of the law, as was read just before. Probably a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. Now we see here a picture of what happens to God's people when they forget what God has said. They become vulnerable to all sorts of pressures from society, both within society and from outside society from their own ambitions and desires, their fears and their worries, and they find themselves little by little thinking and acting 
in ways that end up in complete opposition to God's word. Now before the book of the Lord had been found, Josiah had already attempted to bring reforms to Judah, removing idols and worship of foreign gods from the country. However, upon discovery of the law, we can see from his reaction that he was quite plainly unaware of what, uh, of what was written in there, of the commands that God had said about how he was to be worshipped and about how important it was to not be worshipping these foreign gods. His first reaction is one of humble repentance and also of dread from the punishment that he felt sure that God was going to bring upon his people. Now through this discovery of the book of the Lord, Josiah was now not simply using his best guess in the reforms that he was trying to bring about in the hope to please God. He knew exactly what God had instructed his people to do. And he knew that in the previous generations they had strayed so far from those instructions. His despair at, at Uh, His despair at the situation the nation found itself in was evident, as he said, for the Lord's anger has been poured out on us because our ancestors have not obeyed the word of the Lord. We have not been doing everything the scroll says we must do. Now what followed from there was one of the greatest revivals in the history of Israel. Josiah removed the idols not just from the land of Judah but also from the adjoining land of Israel, which he did not rule. This land that had been conquered some uh, 60 or so years, 60 or 70 years earlier by the Assyrians. The temple was repaired. Legend has it that, uh, that cobwebs had grown over everything inside the temple because worship of God had basically ceased for so long. And temple worship was restored to how it was in the days of Solomon. A Passover was held like it had not been held since Samuel was a prophet over the nation. Involving all the priests and Levites and all the people of Jerusalem, Judah and Israel. This is what the discovery of the law brought about to the nation of Israel. This was the difference between them having the scriptures, being aware of what the scriptures said, and not being aware. Now as we fast forward, and keep on fasting forward, fast forward, okay, actually we'll go back there, go back there, back, we'll go back, and back again. The first few centuries of the church were marked by severe persecution. The idea of Christians being fed to the lions was not just a cliche for the first few generations of Christianity, it was reality. For Christians living in the Roman Empire, this was the way that life was. They lived knowing that an emperor or governor might suddenly decide that he was going to bring a Um, bring persecution upon them, try to drive them out of the empire. However, in 313 AD, the Emperor Constantine, who had earlier seen a vision of a cross on the battlefield, passed the Edict of Milan, which formally ended the Roman persecution of Christians. Now the fact was, by that time, uh, some 250 to 300 years after Jesus died on the cross, Christians had become so numerous 
that persecution was not a viable policy. They had already overcome by the blood of the saints and the word of their testimony. Now, the newfound stability that this legal standing allowed, uh, gave the church, allowed them to spread and establish themselves widely all over Europe, all over North Africa, and all over the Middle East. However, it was not long before problems began to set in. The Church of Rome had traditionally been the most influential out of all of the churches in the uh, Roman Empire. However, the church in Rome became increasingly isolated from the other churches, uh, especially the other influential churches in the eastern Mediterranean in places like Alexandria and Antioch. Now, these were for a variety of reasons. Politics, uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire and the sack of Rome, uh, there was no longer a joint rulership between these churches in the east and the church in Rome. They were under different empires. Language in Rome... They spoke Latin. In the Eastern Mediterranean, they spoke Greek. And also theology. As different theological questions came up, some of the answers that some of the different churches had differed. Now, because of these reasons, increasingly politics came to influence the church's role in society. The church was often called upon to legitimise claims to rulership. Now, in response to this, the ruler was given uh, some sort of uh, power over the church. And so the kings effectively appointed the local bishops. And often the people they appointed were not necessarily the people who they thought were the most spiritual people, the best spiritual leaders, but sometimes the people who they felt could best further their political ambitions through the church. The effects of these political appointments to church offices began to be felt across the whole church. Many of those who appointed were more interested in the trappings of the church offices than in actually serving the flock that God placed uh, placed in their care. And due to political machinations and power plays, some of the very people who were probably the least spiritual rose to the highest positions of power. Added to this, the church was no longer longer just a spiritual entity, it was also a political entity. Several of the popes had mistresses and illegitimate children. They used blackmail and employed assassins. The city's priests kept a large number of prostitutes employed and lived extravagant, decadent lives. The word nepotism stems from this time, from the practice of a pope employing a nephew as a cardinal. Now, some of these times, these nephews were nephews, if you remember the bit about illegitimate children. And also the term white elephant terms from this time. Pope Leo X had a white elephant, which he occasionally rode around the city. Now, as you can imagine, keeping a white elephant is not cheap. It needs to be fed a fair bit. And that and also other extravagant expenses meant that the church was running rather slow on cash at this time. And so one of the practices that the church began was something that that was called indulgences. 
So around the, the empire and the church at that time, priests would go around and ask people to give money, and by giving this money, they would help their family members who had, who had died to be able to have a smoother path into heaven. As the, um, as the saying went, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul into heaven springs. And so they went around preaching things like this. As you can tell, this was a time when these people had lost sight of the gospel. And for several centuries, the church had actually forbidden the translation of the Bible into foreign languages. Latin was the only language that was able to be used. Now, some of the reasons for this was they were worried about different groups bringing about heretical teachings. But it was also very handy in keeping the power concentrated in very few. Now, there were isolated attempts to bring the church back to a true nature with attempts such as by the Waldensians in the 12th century and Jan Hus in the, 14th century, in the 15th century. Sorry. However, it was the early 16th century when the urges for reform began to really gather pace. In 1516, Erasmus published, his, uh, published the New Testament in the original Greek, the language that the, bar, that the New Testament was originally written in. Previously, only the Latin was available. Now, it enabled the church's current teachings to be compared with what the Bible originally said. So when Martin Luther read Erasmus's Greek translation of the New Testament or Greek uh, publication of the New Testament, he then went and published his 95 theses and nailed them onto the, onto the door of his church in Wittenberg. And so the fire started. Not least because this document, thanks to Gutenberg's printing press being uh, developed a century earlier, was able to be widely disseminated. And so these ideas spread all over the empire. Luther's writings brought to light how the church's teachings had relied on inaccurate translations, as was the case for indulgences, uh, tra traditions that did not have a basis in scripture, such as the case of the celibacy of priests, and faulty reasoning, as was the case for various teachings on the Eucharist. As the Reformation continued, the points of difference between what was taught by the Reformers and the Catholic Church became, came to be summarized in five statements. Sola Scriptura that the Bible is the only authoritative-inspired source of doctrine. Sola fide, that we are saved by faith alone. Sola gratia, that we are saved as a work of grace and that our good works have no part in justifying us before God. Sola Christus, that Christ is the only intermediary between us and God and that priests cannot fulfill such a role. And sola gloria, that glory is to be attributed to God alone, not to saints. And soon these ideas were springing up all over Europe, in Switzerland with Swingley, and later with Calvin, and England with William Tyndale, who said he would make the boy who drives the plough know more of the scriptures than the Catholic priests. How would he do that? By translating the Bible into common English so that any person could understand what they said. Now William Tyndale was later burned at the stake for his role in publishing the English Bible. And as he died... He cried out, God, may you open the King of England's eyes. This king was King Henry VIII. 
Two years later, King Henry VIII authorised the publication of an English Bible that was based largely on the work of William Tyndale. So just as Josiah had received the book of the law that had been hidden in the temple for generations, so now the people of this time received the Bible that had been hidden in the church in a foreign language for centuries. For the first time in centuries, people were able to hear the word of God in their own language. They were able to hear the gospel preached in a language they could understand, and they were being urged to respond to God in faith. And so now, 500 years later, we are the beneficiaries of this. The Bible has been translated into almost every language and has been been written down, and parts of it have even been translated into fictional languages such as Tolkien's Elvish. The English language has had hundreds of different translations to reflect the subtle differences in language in different locations and different generations. This wealth of translation added to by the archaeological discoveries mean that now we have a clearer picture of what the, the Bible originally said than probably at any time since it was originally written. And yet, do we see it clearly? How have our faulty assumptions and our traditions blinded us to what the Bible really says? How have we been lulled into thinking the Bible says things that really never says? As in Josiah's time, the Bible, the, the scripture was hidden in God's temple. And at the time of the Reformation, it had been hidden in the church. Perhaps in our day, the Bible has been hidden in plain view. Now, several years ago, when I was training one of our younger staff on campus, I gave him a chapter on uh, worldviews to read. And he read through those chapters, and he came back and he said to me, I think that the uh, modernist worldview is actually the one that is closest to the biblical view, closest to what Christians believe. Now, this made me realize something then. The modernist worldview is not the closest to what the Bible teaches. It's just the one that has the most influence over us. Let me give you some examples. What we think about heaven and hell probably owes more to Dante and Milton than to anything written in the Bible. If you think about hell as being down there then this is more to do with Dante than it is to the Bible. Dante, who wrote in his Inferno about the pits of hell. And did you note the name of Dante's book, Inferno? So if you think about hell as a hot place, well, again, that is something which owes more to Dante than to the Bible. But what's more, you've probably never read Dante's Inferno, have you? Very few people do. Because if you did you would know that at the very centre of hell, it really does freeze over. It's a, a band that I enjoy. has a song called Why is the Devil Red? And it asks why we give the devil sulphur, a long tail and horns, and why he looks like Robert De Niro. The answer? Well, perhaps you read it in John Milton's Paradise Lost. Well, apart from the Robert De Niro bit... You probably got that from watching Angel Heart 
Or if you think he looks like more, more like Al Pacino, you probably watch The Devil's Advocate. The short of it is that so much of what we think about this topic is not from the Bible, but from things that we have picked up from the culture around us. And then we read and interpret the Bible in light of these assumptions. No one can deny that today we live in an oversexed world with many practices that would be unthought of a few generations ago now being perfectly acceptable. And you don't need to look far, though, to find sermons or statements from pastors or church leaders about what the Bible says about sex and condemning these practices. Yet in a world similarly overtaken by greed and the pursuit of more and more riches, how often do we hear what the Bible says about those issues? People are very ready to quote Leviticus in condemnation of homosexual activity. But the Old Testament has just as many passages that speak just as strongly against the practice of usury. A word that we don't hear very often but means the charging of interest. Makes us think twice about that savings account, doesn't it? On one issue we consider the Bible to be relevant, yet in another it's archaic and doesn't speak to our lives. If we've done well in allowing the Bible to speak, to, to speak into our sex lives and what they should be like, have we sold our wallets to our culture in spite of what the Bible clearly teaches, or at least as clearly as it teaches about these things about sex? Just as in the Middle Ages, the papacy was in the pocket of certain political entities, so today, sometimes, we see the same thing happening. There are some people in America I know who view the Republican Party as effectively speaking for God. Now, I know that there are many genuine Christians in the Republican Party, and my issue is not against the Republican Party, but it's to us as a church. And this speaks to politics worldwide. Why are we as Christians more vigilantly opposed to the communist socialist brand of atheism than we are to the Ayn Rand-inspired libertarian view of atheism? Especially as it only takes a cursory glance at the church to see which of the two is having the greater influence on the church. Are we listening to God speaking to us through scripture? Or is God's voice being sidelined by other voices? Have we distorted the gospel we preach to this generation? Will believing in, your God, in God make your life better? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Ask Christians in Pakistan how God has blessed them because of their faith and find out how they've lost their jobs, been ostracized by their families and been driven out of town. Talk to Christians in Turkey who can show you the scars on their body from where they've been beaten for their faith. Is this the wonderful life that we so often preach that people will receive if they just believe in Jesus? God does not promise to, promise to make us materially comfortable. He does not promise to protect us from illness or cancer. He does not promise to spare us from death or disaster. And yet the way we present the gospel to people so often assumes that this is the case. As the Jews of Jesus' day used to thank God for not making them a Gentile, a woman, or a slave, do we in our hearts thank God that he has not made us poor, sick, or with a bad reputation?
Again, do we get these ideas from what the Bible says or from other voices? And what does it mean to live a Christian life? Does it mean we buy our books from Christian bookstores, listen to Christian music, watch Christian movies, and send our children to Christian schools? Wear a Christian t-shirt and put a fish on our car. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things are wrong. All I'm doing is asking where, whether we're getting a picture of what it means to live a Christian life from what the Bible says or from somewhere else. Sometimes it's easier for us as Christians to lock ourselves away from the world instead of being salt and light in the world. Now, how can we find out whether we are really following what is in the Bible? Well, the first step is we need to read the Bible to find out what it really says. And a word of warning there. The Bible is not a simple book. There are lots of different genres in the Bible. There's poetry, there's biography, there's history. Uh, There are all sorts of uh, different genres, and they're written to different cultures and contexts to what most of us live in. And so it is not always going to be perfectly simple to know what any particular part of the Bible says. But if we don't read it, we cannot know. We then need to examine ourselves to understand why we believe what we do. Now let me give you an example of this. When I arrived here in Hong Kong, one of the things I wanted to do first of all was to get a business card. And so I talked to our our office about uh, getting business cards made and they said, we need to uh, decide something first before we can give you a business card. And I come from... Uh, New Zealand, which is, to give some context, the most egalitarian country in the world. Uh, New Zealand, talk about a tall poppy syndrome, New Zealand is a mowing lawn. Everyone is at the same level. The person who is admired most in New Zealand is someone who will refuse a knighthood. You know, they're good enough that they could get it, but they don't want to be anyone special. That is the sort of person that a New Zealander admires. Uh, Class structure is something that is just not accepted. Now, the thing that they wanted to decide before they gave me a business card was what my title was. Now, of course, for me, I was like, I don't care what my title is. I am, you know, egalitarian in that sense. It doesn't matter. But for them, it was important. They needed to work out what my title was. And do you know why? It was because of Confucianism. Now, this is a Christian organization, and the fact is is that Confucianism has so infiltrated Chinese society and Hong Kong society that it's there without people knowing it. One of the Confucian principles is called rectification of names, which is basically everything should have its proper name. It should be accurately named. This is not a bad thing, but the thing is, is that if I ask why... Do they need to know my title? I wouldn't have been told, well, there's this Confucian principle that's really influential in our society, and that's why. They wouldn't have been able to tell me. Now, I can spot that because it's something which is different from the way that I see the world. But how many things are there that we believe that we don't know why we believe them? Now, I warn you to be very careful if you think 
that we believe something just because it's obvious. Go to a different culture and you'll probably find it's not so obvious. So we need to examine ourselves to understand why we believe what we do. What are the cultural and philosophical underpinnings of our beliefs? So we can determine which of them come from God and which of them come from some other source. Now we can get truth from many different sources, but there is only one source where we can be sure that God is speaking. And that is the collection of scripture that we call the Bible. Now there are some important caveats to lay out here. The first is that not every interpretation of scripture is from God. The Jehovah's Witnesses and many other cults derive all of their teachings from the Bible. So it is entirely possible to get your interpretations from the Bible and to be clearly wrong. And this stems from what I said before about how the Bible isn't always a simple book to understand. It is not always that case. And so it is possible to misunderstand things. Just because you have an interpretation does not mean that it is valid. And the reason for that is that our reasoning is not always valid. I studied mathematics at university, and the fact that I never got 100% in any of my exams is testament to the fact that my reason is not always valid. I get things wrong, and you're probably all just like me. Another thing about the Bible being scripture that, that we're not saying here is that we're not saying that the, Bible is, that the Bible is the only source of truth. There are many things that the Bible does not speak of. As C.S. Lewis said, when the Bible teaches, teaches us to feed the hungry, it does not give us lessons in cookery. The Bible is not a cookbook or a science textbook. It's not an instruction book for life. It's not a timeline for future events. What it is, is God speaking to the human race. The Bible contains what God deemed that we, as his church, need to know so that we can know and follow him. It does not replace science or cookery or philosophy or medicine or economics or tradition. But as God's voice to the church, to humanity, it governs all of these. And all of these things must be placed subject to the scripture that God has given us. And if this is the case, then its message is of utmost importance to us. And we must take every effort to understand what God has said in there. We must be vigilant to allow nothing to distort this message or to usurp this message. The Bible is the only message that can take this high position of governing all of the other truths that we receive. No proclamation, whether it be by a pope or by a professor, can take priority to the word of God. That, my friends, is the meaning of sola scriptura. Thank you.